0: Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families, online at novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible.
1: Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, for the seven days starting June 7th. I'm Steve Mirsky. On this week's podcast, we're going to go for a walk through Central Park. Every spring, millions of birds fly over New York City on their northern migration. Many of them stop in Central Park for some rest and relaxation. Early on the morning of May 31st, near the end of the spring migration, I met up with Liz Johnson and Felicity Arengo from the American Museum of Natural History. We rendezvoused at the 77th Street entrance to the museum, just a couple of hundred yards west of the park, and then took off on our walk. We'll hear from Johnson and Arango about the park and green spaces in general and their roles in the lives of birds and other wildlife. And we'll talk to Marie Wynn, a well-known nature writer we bumped into in the park. We'll also hear from a lot of birds, after which we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. So let's go for a walk. It was about 10 minutes before 8 a.m. when we entered the park on 77th Street in Central Park West. So, tell me again who you are.
0: Liz Johnson. And what do you do? I work at the Center for Biodiversity at the American Museum of Natural History, in charge of the Metropolitan Biodiversity Program. Great. And... Felicity Arango. I'm the Associate
2: Director of the Center for Biodiversity and Conservation.
1: We headed for a section of the park called the Ramble.
2: The Ramble is very popular with birders, and it's supposed to be close to, within Central Park, probably the more
0: wild area. You in the park, there's three woodlands, they consider that there's three woodland chunks of habitat in the park, the Northwoods, the Ramble, and then there's a four-acre piece down in the southern end of the park called the Hallett Sanctuary. So of all of them, the Northwoods is probably about 90 acres, and that's the most natural, like more of a typical oak hickory forest than what might have really been here. And then the of Central Park has been modified a lot. This is about 37 acres to ramble, but this seems to be the premier bird spot. There's so many little nooks and crannies and good canopy and good understory that this is really a, a spot for all the birds to come and, and hang out and for the birders to come and see them. They're actively restoring um, the woodlands of the park, so especially in the ramble area here, it's been in infested, I guess, with non-native plant species, and what the Central Park Conservancy folks are doing is removing the non-native species and then bringing back and planting native herbs and native shrubs so they can sort of maintain more natural system in, of woodlands. So you'll see areas that have been fenced off to keep the public from trampling the vegetation, and you'll see little labels where they're actually putting in some of the planting so they can remember what they've put where and keep, keep track on, of those. One of the, the management activities that the park is really focusing on is, especially in these woodlands, of restoring the, the forest floor and may, leaving, making sure the leaves remain and not raking them up, and when branches fall, letting them remain in place so that they could decompose. Just, again, because it's going to restore the whole system, the whole forest system. And also it's good foraging habitat for all these. A lot of the birds we're seeing are, are kicking through the underbrush and kicking through the leaves looking for worms and other insects and other invertebrates. Mm-hmm. So by restoring that whole part of the, the, the forest floor part of the forest is also pretty important from a restoration standpoint and for benefiting the birds and other species that come here, the wildlife.
1: A couple of uh, starlings just working their way through the brush right here.
0: And it's, it's contrary, leaving things unmanicured is contrary to traditional park management where you really want to have things neat and tidy and everything, all leaves raked away. So the, the conservancy has been really good about maintaining the ramble in the northwards, these forested sections, in a more natural state.
1: A little later, I saw a robin land on a tree limb nearby with a beak full of nest material. There's a robin right overhead building a nest.
0: Oh, yeah, look at that. We've got long pieces of grass, it looks like there's some tissue in there, a little bit of plastic.
1: It's an urban yeah. nest.
0: Yeah. She's very neatly weaving all these things together up there. One of the really nice things about Central Park is even though you do get warbler neck from veering up, for some reason a lot of the birds come down low so that you can see a whole array of warblers without even getting warbler neck because they all stay low down in some of these lower shrubs. And the other fun thing is that the birds who do nest here are pretty tolerant of people, so it's an opportunity for every New York res- resident to just come into the park and actually see a bird building a nest or raising the young at eye level or just above eye level. So it kind of makes the birds accessible to the public, which is really, really a nice thing.
1: Once we got deep enough into the park to get away from most of the traffic noise, we talked about how birds use the park and other green spaces. Talk about what, why the park is so important for migratory birds, what this patch of green space represents in the bird world.
2: I could start with a more global reason. Um, when birds are migrating from south to north, in the spring there are roughly there's a concept of the flyway where birds are are following some prescribed routes No, no two species will follow the same exact one and they're they're not like marked roadways that that are precise but for the most part they go along topographical features like coasts rivers mountains so, in the US, we have four major flyways that are the Atlantic, the Mississippi, the one along the Rockies, the Central Flyway, and then the, the Pacific Coast Flyway. But then there are other, these major flyways have tributaries. So, there's a major flyway coming up the Atlantic Coast, and there'll be little branches off at different points. So, so um, birds are coming up along the Atlantic Coast, and of course, New York is part of that coast. And they're coming up and they hit um, New York that has Long Island heading off in the east and the Hudson River Valley going up. So they're, they're coming up along this area and they encounter, after a lot of urbanization, they encounter Central Park that, that's, that's a patch of green in their um, continental migration. So that's, that's in, a, in a global perspective, that's why... You know, coming up from South America or, or the southern United States, they're coming up the coast and they encounter this wonderful patch of green.
1: So it's an opportunity to take a rest, yeah, get something rest, to eat and drink.
2: Yep, refuel, um, and then continue up north.
1: And in the uh, in the fall, in the opposite direction, same thing happens?
2: Yeah, in the fall it's a little more diffuse, wouldn't you say? That it's... Um, the the spring migration Central Park is a, is much more of a hot spot. In the fall, it seems to be more. You know, the birds are collecting at different times. It's it's a more prolonged one, and they're they seem to be more dispersed.
1: When the park was built, that's over hundred years ago. Well, over hundred years ago, it was. It couldn't have been envisioned as this. Uh, this, uh, that, what, that's not why it was built as a stopping place for birds. I mean, there wasn't the same level of urbanization, not even close. There was plenty of green spaces for, for wildlife back then all along the eastern seaboard. So what, uh, what has, I mean, we, we know what the park has evolved into, but how did the birds figure it out? Or, or is it just such a natural thing that after nothing but concrete for a couple hundred miles, they didn't really have any choice?
0: I think it's partly a combination. One, the fact that, The park is located on this flyway, and that as you're coming up the coast, many of the birds will, they don't veer off to Long Island, they're going to veer up the Hudson Valley. So it's right on the route that they would fly. And that because at this point, I think it's it's sort of evolved over time. As the area, surrounding areas, can be completely suburbanized and urbanized, this is a good sized chunk of habitat. And so it's where these birds can land. And, and they need to land. And some of them will stay maybe just for a night if they you know, they get enough rest and they find enough food. Some will stick around for a couple days, maybe for a week. Partly it depends on how much food they can get and it depends on the weather patterns. But a lot of the birds who leave here are going far. They're not just going up to Albany and hanging out up there. They'll go to the Adirondacks. They'll go up to the boreal forest in Canada. So it's pretty critical that they can you know, build up their, their, their fat deposits and their, their reserves to actually continue to make the flight and also have enough reserves when they reach the breeding ground to actually breed, lay eggs and raise a, a brood. So having these stopover spots is pretty critical for the overall success, breeding success of all of these different migratory species.
1: Any idea how many species you'll see here overall? How many do you have the opportunity to see?
0: I think... Over 275 species have been recorded from Central Park. There's probably around 190 that regularly occur here as a resident or just show up on a frequent basis.
1: So the other approximately 85 are exotics? America, there are species
0: that show up every once in a while and everybody's all excited and comes to see them.
1: We'll return to Central Park right after this. Greetings, human. Want to share some thoughts about the
0: podcast? Let us know what you think by participating in our survey at www.siam.com slash research.
1: Because you see so many birds in the park, you also often spot Audubonis bird birdwatchers, also known as birders. A group of about two dozen crossed our path. Any idea how many birders are in the park on any given migration day?
0: I've read hundred, you know, at least a hundred. You can run into, there's some regulars and then a lot of people from other countries come specifically to enjoy the migration and they'll be out here trying to find different spots and see different things to add to their life lists. New York City Audubon and the Linnaean Society and the Museum, a whole host of organizations organize bird walks every spring. And you can either, they're either ones you sign up for for going out the whole, every week for the whole season, or you can just drop in on some of them. So it's really fun, another way, good way to get people out and just learning about the park and feeling comfortable in the park and enjoying nature.
1: And how can people find out about those?
0: I think, well, through any of those organizations. They could just contact New York City Audubon or they could contact the American Museum of Natural History and the Linnaean Society, all three of them, and they could find information about it.
1: Here's a group of birders.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And
1: they'll be able to tell us. Maybe maybe we'll see what they've seen today. Now, this particular group was being led by this very animated woman who was talking about birds and turtles and their phylogenetic relationships. Liz Johnson informed me that the woman was, in fact, writer Marie Wynne, perhaps best known for her book about Pale Male, the famous red-tailed hawk who nests on a very expensive piece of real estate on 5th Avenue. Marie Wynne,
0: who is author of what
1: Red Tails in Love, Red Tails and, and,
3: love. Oh. and many
0: other things and an well, expert. Let,
1: well, let's chat for Central a minute Park if you person, don't mind.
0: Bird person,
3: naturalist. Oh, <laughs> <Well>, thank you.
1: <laughs> so tell me again, now that I am sticking the microphone in your face, what, what you've seen today.
3: Well, first of all, I'll tell you that today is not as great as yesterday. Yesterday was a really good day, unusually good. We had a cuckoo yesterday. and. Um, Every honey locust turned out to be the tree where there were a lot of birds. Something they were just flowering. Um,
1: but you're still getting some warblers today.
3: Yes, we are, but it's the tail end. It's not. We're not going to get 24 species today. We're probably going to end up getting five or six. And it's the females, so it's not that easy to find them because they're not singing there. Lolly gaggling their way back up to the breeding ground while the guys have all you know zipped up there to get their territories so but it's great the park's beautiful it 's not too hot today
1: so. and tell me about the turtle you saw again
3: yes it was like meeting up with a prehistoric creature um, we were at the at a place called the lower lobe and we were listening to birds and just There was this moment, suddenly. oh my God, and there was this huge snapping turtle. It had excavated a hole in a kind of sandy place where they always lay their eggs, and it was laying eggs. Even though it wasn't happy we were there, the process had started, and it was fantastic. And one of our group took pictures of it, and I'll probably put it on my website.
1: What is your website?
3: It's www.mariewinn.com. And then there's one page on it which is Central Park Hawk and Nature News. And that's it's a blog really, that page. The rest of it is just fixed stuff, you know, biography and so on. But that one I really write every day.
1: If right. you're out here bird watching and you see a turtle, it almost counts.
3: Everything counts. That's the great thing about being a Central Park nature person. Yeah, we look at plants, we look at um Seed pods, we try to identify the litter on the ground. Um, It's just a very rich little microcosm. here.
1: Why is identifying the stuff you see interesting and or important rather than just seeing it?
3: That's a big question, as Louis Armstrong said. (laughs) Um, It does fill some kind of deep human need. I think you kind of are organizing the chaos of life in some way and putting things into categories. Uh, there's some people who are completely free of an impulse to categorize and to identify. They don't understand why people do it. Then there are other people who do it, like me and the rest of us, and we don't understand the people who don't. So. Um, It's genetic. It's on the phylogenetic tree. We're
1: back to the phylogenetic tree. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
3: You're very, very welcome. Thanks for asking me all these things.
1: (laughs) By the way, in addition to her own writing, Marie Wynne, who was born in Prague, has translated the works of some very well-known Czech writers, including poet Václav Havel, who also served as president of the Czech Republic. As we continued walking it was obvious that, on this day at least, the robins were really dominating the landscape. How many thousands of robins are there in Central Park? Do you Can you guess? There's only two. No. There's only two. but They're, they're very following
3: noisy. us
0: everywhere. I don't know if anyone's ever done a, a census of actual numbers of you know, breeding pairs of birds in the park. There's lots of long-term data on migration and who's showing up and when. And they have Christmas counts, Christmas bird counts that they do in Central Park. And I know there was a breeding bird atlas done as part of the New York State breeding bird atlas. They actually divided Central Park in blocks sort of on paper and then had people go out and just tabulate within those blocks what, we, what confirmed nesting or possible or probable nesting. So there's a lot of information, but a complete total census of all the breeding individuals I don't think has ever been done for any species.
1: Because there's got to, based on what we're hearing, there's thousands of robins here, right?
0: One of the interesting things to study, we know Central Park is important for migratory birds, and we know that they depend upon the food resources that are here, but no one's ever really done a systematic survey of what actually they're feeding on. Like, we've never done a canopy study of all the invertebrates up in in the trees to see what's coming out when and what is the predominant part of the diet of different birds and sort of quantifying the way they've done, people have done with shorebirds, and sort of gauging, weighing them, catching them, weighing them, seeing how much weight they gain over time while they're rather resting and feeding before they depart for the, on their northern trip. I don't know how you would do it. It'd be challenging to do it for all of these different songbirds that are here, but to get a better handle on what is it that they're really depending on, which of the invertebrate food resources or vegetation food resources are they actually do they actually need?
1: So, any graduate students who might be listening, if they're looking for a thesis. Yeah. Well, it was time to get back to the concrete and commotion, but not before we ran into this very nice lady who spends more time in the park than any birder. She noticed our binoculars and yelled out her compliments on our hobby from her motorized cart. It's
3: good that she's at that hobby, that's (laughs) right. The only hobby I got is cleaning Central
1: Park. We'll be right back. Novartis. Committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients
0: and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis. Think what's
1: possible. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. A contest will reward the best cartoons satirizing political interference in science. Story two. Road Rage. Maybe the honking idiot behind you actually has what's now being called Intermittent Explosive Disorder. Story three, Penn State researchers have programmed computers to do a decent job of judging the beauty or blahness of pictures. And story four, in the new X-Men movie, one of the mutants is shown eating a copy of Scientific American. Time's up. Story one is true. The Union of Concerned Scientists is sponsoring an editorial cartoon contest to draw attention to the political misuse of science. The deadline for getting your cartoons in is July 31st. You can read more about the contest at our blog, blog blog.siam.com. Story 2 is true. Some cases of road rage may be incidents of a larger syndrome, now being called intermittent explosive disorder. A study in the June issue of Archives of General Psychiatry says that about 16 million Americans may have the condition in which you don't just fly off the handle, you throw the entire coffee cup up against the wall. Story three is true. Penn State's James Wang developed what's called computational aesthetic software that allows a computer to make quick decisions about what's a good picture. The judgments match those that humans make about 70% of the time. Such software could speed up web searches for images or even find a home one day in digital cameras to help photographers compose their pictures better, which is... Pretty much the only thing we humans still need to worry about with a lot of digital cameras. All of which means that story four about one of the mutants in the new X-Men movie eating a copy of Scientific American is totally bogus. Because what is true is that one of the mutants in X-Men The Last Stand is shown actually reading a copy of Scientific American. When we're first introduced to the blue-furred beast, played by Kelsey Grammer, he's hanging upside down reading the October issue of Scientific American with our article on founder mutations prominently featured on the cover. The article's about how specific genetic changes that either cause disease or protect against disease can help researchers trace human migrations over thousands of years. Here's how the beast in you can access that article. Hi, I'm John Rennie, Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American. Our magazine is now available in a digital edition. Not only does your Scientific American digital subscription include the full contents of every new printed issue, it also entitles you to access our digital archives from 1993 to the present. For more information, visit www.siamdigital.com. That's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at Siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.